Father, we are so thankful for giving us uh, this portion of your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit now. We confess that nothing will happen in our hearts, our minds, or our lives unless you send the spirit to give us understanding and to help us love these truths and apply these truths to our lives. Father, I pray that you would guard my lips very carefully. Have me only say what you want me to say, nothing more and nothing less this morning. Uh, And we pray, most importantly, that Jesus Christ would be honored and magnified as the word is preached. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Have you ever felt abandoned? Maybe you were abandoned at one point by a friend or a boss um, or a coworker or a sibling or maybe worst of all, you were abandoned by a spouse. No one likes the feeling of being abandoned by a friend or a loved one. Let me provide some context for this particular verse. The disciples here feel like they are being abandoned by Jesus. Theologians call John 14 to 16 the upper room discourse, and that's because uh, Jesus spoke, this was his last block of teaching before he was crucified, and he spoke these words uh, in an upper room just a couple of hours before he was arrested and then tried and crucified. And he just spent some time in the previous text, which we talked about last week, describing the fact that following Jesus means persecution, hatred from the world, possibly even martyrdom. And right after he says that, he basically tells the disciples, life's going to be really hard for following me, and by the way, I'm about to leave you. And surely these men felt like they were about to be abandoned by God. They surely thought, Jesus, really? You just told us that life is going to be really hard for following you, and now you're telling us that you're going to leave us, you're going to forsake us, you're going to abandon us? Wouldn't it be better if you were here with us physically? And in response, Jesus utters these incredible words that are so surprising that they're unbelievable. Jesus actually says to the disciples, yes, life is going to be very hard for following me, But it's better for you if I leave. Because if I don't leave, the Spirit's not going to come and dwell inside of you. Said another way, Jesus essentially says, it's better to have the Holy Spirit within you than to have me next to you. Again, (laughs) he utters these words, it's better to have the Holy Spirit inside of you than to have me physically next to you. Which raises the obvious question, how in the world is that better? How is it better to have the Spirit inside of us than to have Jesus next to us physically? How is that better? It's better because of all the amazing things the Spirit of God does to us as Christians. And this text describes the ministry of the Spirit for us. Not in detail, but it does tell us four things about what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit empowers the saints the Spirit convicts sinners, the Spirit guides the saints, and the Spirit magnifies the Savior. Because the Spirit does that, it's better to have Him inside of us than to have Jesus next to us. Let's look at these four things in detail. First is the Spirit empowers the saints. Well, when will this happen? When will the Spirit empower the saints? 
only after Jesus leaves. Look with me at John 16, 5 to 7. Jesus says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Their hearts are filled with sorrow because, again, he just told them, life's going to be hard, and I'm leaving you. (laughs) Then verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Amazing words. Again, Jesus says, it's to your advantage, disciples, that I go away, that I leave you. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And again, these words are astonishing. They're hard to believe. Jesus, the divine Son of God, says to the disciples, it's to their advantage. It's better if he leaves them so that the Spirit of God can come. Now, why are these words so hard to believe? Because Jesus, as you all know, is God. He's all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He is all-loving. He's existed forever. He knows all things. Surely, it would be better to have Jesus next to us than to have him leave us, right? Doesn't that make sense? But Jesus says, no, actually, uh, it's better if I leave you. Now, how in the world could Jesus say that? Because Jesus knew that until he left them and went to the cross and suffered and died in their place, absorbing the wrath that all their sins deserve, until he did that, the disciples and us would not be able to contain the Spirit. Why? Because we're sinners. Our bodies are guilty of sin. And the Spirit of God cannot come and dwell inside of us until Jesus Christ goes to the cross, suffers and dies in our place, and rises from the grave. And when when he does that, that will enable God to see us as perfect. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we can be cleansed of all of our sin, can be removed as far as east is from the west, and then, and only then, can the Spirit of God come and dwell inside of us. The second person of the Trinity God the Spirit is a person equal with the Father and the Son. And because of Christ's work on the cross, the Spirit can come and dwell inside of us. And that's really good news. Jesus knows that all of the promised blessings of the new covenant will not be made real to us until he dies and goes to the cross and then rises from the grave. And when he does that, The Spirit of God will apply all the new covenant blessings to us as he dwells inside of us. Like what? In the old covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, Joel chapter 2, God promises that the Spirit will come and regenerate our hearts and then write his law on our hearts, empower us for ministry, and give us spiritual gifts. And none of that can happen until Christ goes to the cross and dies. And when he does that, all those glorious realities become true of us, all because of Christ's crucifixion. So yes, it's true. The Spirit inside of us, bringing all the new covenant blessings to us, is better than having Jesus next to us. And because the Spirit dwells inside of us, he empowers us now to do all the things that God requires of us. 
He's for us, not against us. Pastor J.D. Greer tells the story of a young man in his church who was well-liked, well-spoken, very popular in the college ministry. But this young man had a deep, dark secret that no one knew about. His name was Brennan, not his real name. And Brennan was enslaved to pornography and homosexual practice. And no matter what he tried, he could not escape these temptations. By the time he finally confessed his sins to a pastor, he was totally broken, dejected, and depressed. And at this point, he tried everything to flee sin. He tried support groups. He tried willpower. He tried memorizing Scripture. He got rid of the Internet, did all kinds of things to stop sinning. But no matter what happened, he would do well for a season, then he would fall, feel awful, guilty, depressed, condemned. Then he would do well again for another short season, and then he would fall again and feel awful, depressed, condemned, guilty, unloved. He was totally broken, didn't know what to do. And when the pastors finally found out about his sins, they thought he needs significant help. And so they recommended that he go to a Christian counseling center and get the help that he needed. And then J.D. Greer writes this, Brennan showed up at my house eight months later after the intensive Christian counseling, and he was noticeably different in his demeanor. I asked him what he'd learned, and he said, I didn't learn anything new. I learned to lean on the Holy Spirit. I always knew he was in there, but I didn't know how to relate to him. He went on to say, these temptations are still with me. I suppose they always will be. But I have found in the Spirit of God a power more potent than the lust of my flesh. Being filled with God the Holy Spirit has done more for me than all the seminars I sat through or coping techniques that I mastered. Why is it better to have the Spirit inside of us than Jesus next to us? Because the Spirit's presence inside of us empowers us to please God. In the immediate context here of John 16, Christ is saying, disciples, you're about to be persecuted for following me, but I'm going to send the Spirit to give you grace and strength to obey me and to be courageous even in the midst of hostility and martyrdom. God the Spirit inside of us gives us everything we need to obey his commands and to serve others. So yes, the Spirit inside of us is better than Jesus next to us. Well, how do we tap into this power? Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says these words, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now that is a present continuous tense, to be filled with the Spirit. Paul is implying that we should always seek to be filled with the Spirit. How do we do that? Bill Bright, the founder of Chemistry Save for Christ, talked about it this way. He said, it's called spiritual breathing. We breathe out or repent of our sins. God, forgive me for the sin of pride or anger, whatever the sin is. And then, Spirit of God, would you please come inside of me, fill me once again, and give me power and strength to say no to anger or pride or defensiveness or greed or coveting or lust. We breathe out sin. We repent of our sins. And say, Spirit of God, come and help me, dwell inside of me, fill me, empower me. 
And that needs to happen all the time, not just once, but on a regular basis. So first, the Spirit empowers the saints, but there's more to His ministry. Second, the Spirit convicts sinners. Well, what does He specifically convict sinners of? Well, a few things in this text. Uh, the Spirit convicts of sin. John 16, 8 to 9, Jesus says, and when He, that is the Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Now, the word sin in this particular context is in the singular indicating a specific sin, it, probably the sin here of not believing that Jesus is the Christ. And that's the one sin that keeps people out of heaven, refusing to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Spirit convicts of sin. In addition, the Spirit convicts of righteousness. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And then concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. Now, this could refer to God's righteousness, but more than likely, just in the immediate context, this refers to self-righteousness. The Spirit of God convicts religious people of self-righteousness. The Spirit convicts of sin, the Spirit convicts of righteousness. In addition, the Spirit convicts of judgment. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. And then concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, verse 11 is difficult to interpret. Jesus could be saying the Spirit convicts the world of coming judgment due to their sin, or the Spirit convicts the world of their false judgments about Jesus. In one sense, both are true. The Spirit does both those things. The bottom line is this. The Spirit is the one who convicts sinners of their need for Jesus. He convicts of sin, of self-righteousness, and of coming judgment. That's His primary role in the lives of non-believers. Now, one of my heroes in church history is St. Augustine of Hippo. He was born in 354. In fact, one of my sons is named after him, Silas Augustine Farley. Now, Augustine was a brilliant, brilliant theologian, one of the greatest minds in church history. But before he was a Christian, he was a very, very depraved individual. Uh, he loved to steal things. Uh, he was totally enslaved to sexual sin. He was proud. He was rude. He was self-righteous. He was not a good person. And he was totally opposed to Christianity, even though his mom prayed for him and evangelized him. So he tried to live his life apart from Christ, and he tried to be a good person. But no matter how hard he tried, he could not say no to sin. He was totally enslaved, especially to sexual sin. He was a very licentious person. By the way, you can read this story uh, in a famous book called St. Augustine's Confessions. The whole book is his biography. It's a classic in church history. If you haven't read it, read it. It's wonderful. So in this season of, of frustration, angst, because he couldn't control his passions, he went into his backyard one afternoon and sat underneath a tree, and his soul was in tremendous agony because he realized he could not say no to sin, and that sin was ruining his life, and he couldn't stop that from happening. So he sat in a chair under this tree in, in the shade, and he cried, and he pulled his hair out, literally, and then he got up and walked around, and then he sat underneath a pear tree, and he fell on his knees and, again, was in agony, realizing he could not change himself. 
As he was on his knees in agony, he heard the, the sound of a little girl singing in the yard next to him. And it was, an, it was a common song that everyone knew, and, and, and she kept singing these words in Latin, tololege, tololege, tololege. That was the chorus of the song. And in English, that simply means uh, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And so Augustine thought, this must be God speaking to me. So the nearest thing he saw happened to be a Bible. He took it up, and he opened it, and he read the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 13 to 14. And these are the words. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, when Augustine read those words, the Spirit of God flooded his soul, and instantly he was aware of the fact that he was a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. The Spirit of God used these words to convict him of sin and self-righteousness and the coming judgment. And in that moment, he cried out to God for grace and mercy, and God forgave him of all of his sins and placed his spirit inside of him. And as a result, the Western world was never the same because he had an incredible influence on the church for the next 2,000 years, 1,700 years to be more precise. God the Spirit convicted him of sin. No one else could. If, in fact, it is the Spirit and only the Spirit that convicts sinners, you and I must ask the Spirit to do His convicting work. Most people that you and I know rarely experience much conviction. Most folks think they're pretty good. They haven't murdered anyone. They recycle. They drive electric cars. They only say mean things about mean people. Most folks think that they're going to heaven because they're pretty good people. Most people rarely experience conviction of sin. They're not aware of their incredible need to cry out to God for grace and mercy. Only the Spirit of God can perform that supernatural work. And since only the Spirit can do this, you and I must pray for our loved ones, our children, and our friends who don't know Jesus. No matter how articulate we are, no, no matter how much we try to persuade our friends of their guilt, we can't. The Spirit of God must do this work. The Spirit of God must convince others of their tremendous need for Jesus. He's the one, and He's the only one who can bring about this essential conviction of sin. Furthermore, we must align our message with the Spirit's convicting work. If it's the Spirit's job, to convict of sin, you and I must open our mouths and tell people the fact that their sins make them objects of God's righteous judgment. Not a popular message, but the Bible's very, very clear on this point. If we don't repent of our sins, we will spend all eternity separated from God, experiencing His righteous wrath. So we must tell our friends in love that their sins are a massive problem, their greatest problem by far. If you're here this morning and you're a teenager or a child, have you experienced this? 
Are you aware of your tremendous need, your greatest need by far? And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Apart from him, your sins will do great damage to your soul for all eternity. Are you aware of that fact? Finally, we must ask if we have experienced the Spirit's convicting work. What does that mean? According to one scholar, conviction is not merely the admission that you have sinned, just like everyone else. Rather, it is the confession that you are a heinous breaker of God's righteous law and a rebel against God's holy rule, justly deserving eternal condemnation. Only the Spirit of God working on the soul can bring this conviction. Have you experienced this conviction? And has it caused you to cry out to God for grace and mercy? The Spirit does many, many things. One of his most important works is bringing about conviction of sin. The Spirit empowers the saints. The Spirit convicts sinners in addition. Third, the Spirit guides the saints. Well, how does the Spirit guide the saints? Through the Scriptures. Look with me at John 16, 12 to 13. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide them in all truth. Now, he's not talking here about all truth everywhere, truth of science and history and philosophy. He's talking here about the truth of the person and work of Jesus, his gospel and eternal life. Notice that the Spirit will not speak on his own authority. He will only speak what he hears from the Father and the Son. In other words, he will only speak truth from God. Well, how does the Spirit guide us into all truth today the same way? He guides us into all truth by helping us understand what the Father and the Son have spoken. What have they spoken? They've spoken the words of sacred Scripture. The Spirit of God is the one who guides us into truth by helping us to understand Scripture. Theologians call this the doctrine of illumination, The Spirit of God illumines our hearts and our minds and helps us understand and love and apply the Scriptures. I used to have 2010 vision in high school. That's better than 2020. My eyes were amazing, not to brag or anything. When I um, graduated from college, things got worse very fast. I remember being in church when I was 23 years old in Seattle, and, and I thought, why can't I read the lyrics on the screen? I got my first pair of glasses about two months later. And then a year and a half later, with my glasses on, I remember sitting in Hebrew class in seminary thinking, I can't read the Hebrew on the, on the whiteboard. There was a number of reasons for that, not just, not just my vision. <clears throat> so I got my next pair of glasses, And then a year later, I thought, with my glasses on, I can't read the street signs. (laughs) What's wrong with the street signs? Now I'm on my, I've lost track, sixth or seventh prescription. If I'm not wearing my contacts or my glasses, I can't see anything. My eyes are awful. 
In fact, if my kids are 20 feet away and my contacts are out of my eyes, I can't tell which child it is. It's bad. It's gotten really bad. But when I put those glasses on and the contacts in, all of a sudden, the things that were really, really blurry are now crystal clear. John Calvin said the Spirit of God is like, are like glasses or spectacles that we put on that help us to see and understand the Scriptures. Until we have those glasses on, until the Spirit of God is illuminating our minds and helping us, the Scriptures are very blurry, unclear. Now, in one hand, on one hand, anyone can understand what the Bible says. It's pretty straightforward. But to actually rejoice in that truth, believe that truth, relish in that truth, that's the work of the Spirit. So often when we're reading our Bibles and we're stuck and we think, what in the world does Revelation 12 mean? Or what in the world does Romans 9 mean? We grab a commentary or a study Bible. Instead, we should talk to the author of Scripture, Spirit of God, what does this mean? Help me understand this. He's the one who wrote it. The Spirit of God loves to help us and guide us into truth by giving us illumination, helping us understand what the Scriptures say. The application is obvious. Whenever you read the Bible, pause and say, Spirit of God, please, please, please help me understand this and love it and rejoice in it and apply it to my life. The Spirit loves to guide us into truth by giving us illumination. And how often do you and I forget to pray that simple prayer before we read our Bibles? Spirit of God, help me. Help me understand this and apply it. And it's more than understanding. It's also delighting in, relishing in, and rejoicing in the truth of Scripture. The Spirit of God alone helps us do that. He guides us into truth as we read the Scriptures. What a gift. The Spirit empowers the saints. The Spirit convicts sinners. The Spirit guides the saints. And fourth and finally, the Spirit magnifies the Savior. Well, how does the Spirit magnify the Savior? By constantly glorifying the Savior. Look with me at John 16, 14, and 15. Jesus says, He that is the Spirit will glorify me. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, many theologians argue the Spirit's central work, his most important work by far, is this, glorifying Jesus. Again, 14a, Jesus says, he, the Spirit, will glorify me. And he's constantly doing this. And he does this as he takes what um, Jesus said, the scriptures, and illuminates it to us. But more specifically, he's pointing us to Jesus and magnifying Jesus in the scriptures. There's a reason at GCF that we are so committed to being Christ-centered or gospel-centered, and that's because the Spirit's committed to that. His primary work in our lives is to make Jesus glorious, is to magnify Jesus. The Holy Spirit is constantly doing this by pointing us to Christ's person and work. And one of the most important theologians of the 20th century was a man named J.I. Packer, who died recently. And as he was walking towards a cathedral 
in the evening, he noticed floodlights from the outside illuminating uh, a massive stained glass window. In that moment, he realized that the Spirit is like those floodlights. And he says this. He writes these words. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You're not, not in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. Then he goes on to write this. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. The Spirit's ministry primarily is to glorify or magnify Christ for us. Because when you and I have a glimpse of Christ's glory, as I've said often, everything changes. When someone is truly spirit-filled, they'll be incredibly Christ-centered. We often think that someone who's spirit-filled has all kinds of spiritual gifts. Well, maybe, but a much more important test is this. Someone who's spirit-filled is a lot like Jesus. They're growing in humility, in love, in compassion, in mercy. They're devoted to Jesus. They're relying on Jesus. They're obedient to his commands. And they are passionate to tell others about the glory and splendor of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit magnifies the person and work of Christ in our lives, again, everything changes. Everything. That's our greatest need. Our greatest need by far, without question, is to see more of the splendor of Jesus. And it's the Spirit's ministry to do that in and through us. Well, I'm not sure what challenges you face this week. Unemployment, a difficult marriage maybe, maybe mounds of guilt and condemnation, maybe discouragement or depression, maybe severe stress as a result of a health crisis or school or work. And when facing these challenges, we often think, if only Jesus were next to me, if I could touch him, see him, shake his hand, hug him, if he were next to me, then and only then would I be able to thrive in the midst of these significant trials. Jesus says, no, it'd be better if I left so that the Spirit of God, who is fully God, equal with the Father and the Son, so the Spirit of God can come and live inside of you. And by the way, because the Spirit is inside of you, Christ is always with you spiritually. He's not physically present, but Christ now dwells inside of us by the Spirit. 
Because Christ suffered and died on the cross, purifying us, cleansing us, the Spirit of God comes to reside in us, manifesting Christ's presence to us. And He will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. And He's given us everything we need to thrive, even in the midst of awful persecution. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are so thankful that you have devised an incredible plan. You wanted to place your spirit inside of us, but that couldn't happen until Jesus suffered and died for us, cleansing us from all the remnants of sin. Thank you, Christ, for coming, removing all of our sin, and enabling us to be permanently indwelled by the Spirit of God. Father, thank you for this incredible gift of kindness. Lord, help us this week to remember who lives inside of us. Help us to stop often, repent of our sins, and then breathe in the Spirit. We want to be a church that's marked by robust dependence on the Spirit of God, always and for everything. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.